Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm talking today with my friend, local filmmaker Steve Hamm, the director of Shift Change, a new documentary about the past, present, and future of community policing in the Elm City. It'll be playing at this year's New Haven Documentary Film Festival. Steve, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. It's wonderful to be on with you. Thanks. Congratulations on completing yet another documentary about the Elm City. I know, you know, for a show that is dedicated to celebrating New Haven through movies and the people that make them, I am you've it. become I am a staple of that. We are aligned. <laughs> that need. Um, so we were just talking about uh, the sixth year of NH Docs. Before we jump into the specifics of your movie, how's it feel to be a part of this uh, this festival well, six years in? This is my second year as a, as a filmmaker, and I actually have, I played a role in two films that are in this year, a short by Chaz Carmen called Single Dads, which is about the, these kind of, I think single dads are kind of the invisible people of our societies in some ways. And his is specifically about single dads of color. It is a wonderful little film. It's his idea, his show, Bob, but I just helped out with some cinematography and editing and stuff like that. Chaz so, Carmen being the director of Ice the Beef Youth, yes, which is yes. a wonderful local anti-violence yeah. organization that encourages teens to express themselves mostly yeah. through music and, and dance, but yeah. also they do a lot of great work in New Hallville and Dixwell yeah. in particular. He's a wonderful guy and his... His uh, his video is going to be on Saturday. There's the shorts. I think they're called short stacks or something. Two one thirty New Haven Free Public Library. So I hope people go to it because it is a wonderful little film that he's made. How do you connect with Chaz in that film? Through, well, just, I know he's I, featured in your movie. Well, Ice the Beef. I met him through his his efforts to quell violence and to help kids you know, take a different path and use creativity as an alternative path to, to the other things that could happen growing up in the city. So we've got Chaz's movie. We've got, but, you know, we're also just talking about how NH Docs has grown from this weekend-long uh, f- celebration of four local filmmakers' movies uh, six years ago, and just the local filmmakers were the founders and directors of the fest to 11 day marathon of over a hundred movies by not just local and regional filmmakers, but Michael Moore's coming in for retrospective. You got DA Pennebaker, Peter Davis playing hearts and minds. Um, does this feel like it's becoming rapidly becoming a stop on the, I don't know, the film festival circuit. I certainly hope so. It's, it, it has the programming. It has the content chops for that. And new Haven is, a delightful place for somebody to visit for a few days. So I think the combination of the city and all of its charms and the film festival is just a great thing. And hopefully it will, it will bring people from, you know, beyond our suburban ring, you know, well, last night it brought a bunch of people from Hartford because there was a, there was a film, uh, about basically about violence, street violence in Hartford. What was the name of it? Hmm. I don't remember the, the name as well. well you have to go I to nhdocs.com yeah, to check out the name. Yeah, I the name it was. But there were two films last night about police and crime and and uh, and uh, violence. And then, of course, there's mine. So there are actually three in this year's festival kind of on similar topics, though we approach them things very differently. The, 
the the material is different, the point of view is different, and also the style of the movie making is different. So the end for for whenever you may be listening, the festival runs from May thirtieth to June 9th. Uh, almost all of the screenings are at the Whitney Humanities Center at Wall Street and Church. Uh, they're almost all free. I think the only two paid shows are come with uh, concerts. Uh, at Cafe Nine, yeah. and there are a few screenings at uh, the Public Library on Elm Street, as well as at the State House on State. So go to nhdocs.com, check out all the wonderful stuff that's playing at this year's festival, uh, including Shift Change. Let's uh, or Shift Change. I should emphasize shift the first change. Shift Change. Shift it's change. like New Haven, not New yeah. Haven. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the last time we had you on the show was to talk about the Village, your previous documentary about the history of Worcester Square and really its birth and growth as an Italian-American enclave, and then it's uh, the dissipation of that unique ethnic character of you the could neighborhood. You could even say destruction. Destru- dis- right, destruction yeah. uh, Demolition. urban renewal, yeah. deindustrialization, yeah. all this stuff. Um, and it really uh, feels a bit like a, uh, as, as wonderful as Worcester Square is t- uh, today, a eulogy to a particular era of, of Worcester Square is shift change a eulogy to a bygone idealistic approach to policing that that involves uh, law enforcement actually getting to know and belonging to the communities they serve? Or is this something different? Well, I, I certainly don't think it's a passe idea. I mean, when, when people... So the idea behind community policing, which emerged as kind of an official strategy in the 1990s, is just the idea that the police should seek to build abiding relationships, personal relationships with people in the community, that they that only through that kind of contact and continued contact, not just kind of showboating, but actually being there, listening, building trust, showing respect, showing empathy, building empathy in the police officers through the through the process. And and out of it comes uh hopefully a sense in the community that the police are there to help and hopefully a sense in the police department that hey we this is a service that we're providing and that our that our goals and the goals of the people that we serve are the same to help keep them safe. And so that basic concept, I hope, never goes out of style. And people, some people say, oh, well, isn't that what policing started with, you know, in, 19, in 1750 or something like that? And, and back then, yeah, people, the police officers walked around and they probably knew everybody in the neighborhood. So it does, it does have kind of this precedent in the earliest days of the idea of a peace officer. But... Uh, you know, I think in this day and age, uh, you know, the way it's been practiced in New Haven, and it's been kind of waxed and waned in New Haven, depending on who the police chief is and who the mayor is or whatever. But, you know, in, in recent years, it's really come on strong, the past, since about 2012. And, um, you know, I think it's been, in terms of cr- dealing with crime, crime has plummeted. So there's no question that Community policing has played a role in that. How much of a role? You could debate. There's no way of knowing, actually. Hmm. But I think it's been successful in that way. But, you know, in other ways, there's still a lot of progress to be made. There are a number of police officers at the New Haven Police Department who a bunch of us would agree shouldn't be there because they are repeat offenders. 
either you know either showing either being disrespectful of people you know quite commonly or actually using excessive force mm-hmm. so it's it's i think it's being practiced earnestly yet far from perfectly and there's some bad apples i'm i i appreciate you you taking on that uh somewhat peaked question that i want to kick off with because i i do Yes, I, as someone who reports in New Haven, I also certainly see the, the gospel of community policing preached everywhere from politicians and police officers uh, and community management teams. This is something that we still very much want to hold on to and strive uh, to, to realize. But I do, um, I do, I didn't notice that in your movie, which begins, at least the New Haven focused part of your movie, really begins with the sudden resignation of Chief Anthony Campbell, who I think a lot of New Haveners uh, recognized as a very community-engaged officer, someone who, even though he's not from New Haven, spent decades working his way up the force, and it's just one of the more, the the kindest and more, like, empathizing and empathetic people you will meet in any wake of life, uh, let alone a police officer. Absolutely. Uh, not to say that the people in charge now are not, yeah, but I yeah. think that Campbell brought a uniquely um, sympathetic and, again, empathetic uh, face to the chief's office. And then it ends with uh, the the very tragic and infuriating and unfortunate incident in New Hallville earlier this year uh, when a Hamden police officer crossed town lines uh, and shot a, a lot of rounds at uh, an unarmed couple in a car yeah. uh, very early in the morning in New Hallville. Um, I do... Uh, I do want to ask about most of the. So you, your movie consists of many interviews and ride-alongs with police officers and a lot of interviews with community members too. Chaz Carmen being one of them who we just spoke about, Barbara Fair, Rodney Williams, John Lugo, people who, who follow New Haven activist police accountability circles will really recognize. I don't think that any of those community members interviewed said that community policing is happening today. Is that do you, is is that my is that am I correct in my they reading all, of their I would say they interpretation all, of community I, policing? I would interpret them as saying some of them saying, "Well, they're trying, but it's not as it's not real, or it's not as as good as it should be, or they're not really trying very hard, and it's not it's just uh, you know talk." So that was a critique that that I heard and I put in the movie from a bunch of people. Um, and how did that for, how did that change how did that affect your understanding of what community policing is and how it actually plays and just focusing on the community angle right now and then there's yeah, a lot of, yeah, to yeah. go into in the movie no, but I, no, I how did that affect you well uh, people just regular people you know like you and you and I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of different people learn a lot of different things so we're kind of in a different category but regular people you know experience things personally. Uh, they read about them, and they also, through their friends, are they influence their friends, and they're influenced by their friends' stories. So I think that the activists who I interviewed have absolutely legitimate points of view, but just because they have that point of view doesn't mean that's the, the, the last word on what's, you know, the way to analyze the situation. Uh, because I think... You know, maybe they have experiences, you know, I mean, different people have different experiences. So what I tried to offer was different people with different experiences, and you'll see, you know, a wide variety of them. 
And so people can think about it. Say, oh, that person, that person has that experience. Here's we understand why, you know, that this kind of thing. Um, so I think they're all legitimate, and I think they're all persuasive, but I don't think they're all encompassing. I mean, I think they're that's different people's points of view. So when I think about where do I come down, I come down. It is practiced earnestly, but far from perfectly. I think there that is. That is an assessment that I could I, I I defy anyone to disprove. I think one of the more specific critiques of community policing in practice comes from Rodney Williams interviewed in the movie who says that what the big problem he sees with it as it plays out right now is that there's such a high rate of turnover in the police department that neighbors do not have simply do not have time to get to know the officers who are assigned to their neighborhoods and there's no chance to build up a relationship but a good part of your movie um is you in the front seat or the back seat i don't remember i don't i don't remember where exactly in the car but you were riding I, I, along I moved from walking seat to alongside yeah. move yeah. from seat to seat but you spend a lot of time with the officers especially in fairhaven yeah. who are in the neighborhood so tell me a bit about what you saw about yeah. the relationships they build about the work that yeah. they were doing. So the film is 60 minutes long and right in the middle of it, there are 30 minutes about Fairhaven. And I decided the way to tell this story, uh, partly is through a close look at how it's practiced in, in one neighborhood. So you can really get, uh, a kind of a deeper understanding. And, um, so I chose Fairhaven for two reasons. One, I asked Paul Bass which district manager would he consider the paradigm of virtue in community policing, and he said David Zanelli. And David Zanelli was at the time the district manager for Fairhaven. Uh, and the other reason I chose it was because Fairhaven has, it actually has, um, the population is 70% Hispanic. So in addition to the normal kind of conflict, natural conflicts and barriers between police and people, there was the language barrier, and then there's also and other cultural issues around, you know, that. But also, there's the fact that a lot of people in Fairhaven uh, do not have documented status. They are illegally in the United States. So the, the sense of trust, the willingness to open up and, and even call the police is an issue. So I thought, this is a place to look. It's a tough nut from one point of view. From that point of view, it's hard to, 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 be, to do poli- good policing there. And it's got a guy who's, you know, recognized by a lot of people as somebody who really believes in it and does a pretty good job of it. So I went there and I spent, I interviewed people, kind of patrol officers on different shifts and different jobs, to sergeants, to the lieutenant, uh, went you know, went around with them, watched what they did, went out, you know, they were, they had walking beats because often in the, in the warm weather, there's a walking beat wherever there's a, a neighborhood that really has kind of a, a downtown area or, a, a you know, a commercial district. So I did that and I talked to all the officers. Um, I'll tell you right now, I probably, I don't know how many officers I interviewed, but three Three of the key officers who played a big role in my film have left the New Haven Police Department since it was made. Uh, and, and I'm just talking about in Fairhaven. There are others 
elsewhere. And Zanelli was transferred to Zanelli, the head of the Eternal Affairs Division. So that's he's right. Also no longer he was transferred job. out, which mm-hmm. was a very sore point among the people of Fairhaven. Here he is. He's been there 15 months. He wants to be here for years. They want him to be here for years. He's transferred out. And it's, it's you know, an illustration of the difficult problems of turnover in New Haven. And, um, you know, he was assigned to be the head of the Internal Affairs Division. And I have to say, that's a very good choice. He has, you know, he's been a detective. He's been, I think, a homicide investigator. As far as I can make out, the guy, I mean, he's like a Boy Scout in terms of his integrity. So that's a good person to have is internal affairs. Uh, so I think that's good to have him there. But then, of course, it, it took him out of Fairhaven. But, you know, the turnover, New Haven's turnover problem ultimately is a budgetary problem because the New Haven police officers get paid substantially less than their suburban counterparts. Their health benefits are substantially less. Their retirement benefits are less. So the suburban towns and Stamford in particular swoop in and scoop up, you know, the, they, they, they take the cream of the crop often. Not, not all of them. I mean, there are plenty of good police officers left here. But they come in and they scoop up these young officers who have been there like five years. They're really well-trained. They're well-seasoned. They are wise, and they get scooped up. Was that something that came up in your conversations with officers about the 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 lore of other departments or the the high rate of term? Because I think the movie itself focuses pretty specifically on this idea of community policing and how it its uh, its ideals, and then how it's actually in practice in neighborhoods. There's a lot more going on in the department than yes. just conversations about community policing. But did you find that a uh, Officers oh, officers were, did were complain about, about it. They talked about, I, I, I'm not sure about this, but so I'm a little reluctant, but I, I think somebody told me that a New Haven police officer, a young one, their their health insurance is covered, but maybe not their family members, or I, I can't remember what it is, or, or, or the family members, it's minimal, and they just have to pay thousands of dollars a year. You know, a beginning New Haven police officer gets 44000 you know, and that's... You know, that's not a lot of money. You're risking your life every day. Tell me a bit about, as a filmmaker, what it was like being on these calls. I mean, you spend a lot of time going to actual scenes of of potential crimes. Just You're following around an officer in his day-to-day, your night-to-night life. Yeah. Tell, tell me about uh, the balance you have to strike between, yeah. you know, being in the background, not interfering with what's going on, but also documenting it while still preserving the yeah. anonymity of the, so I don't know. So what was your experience yeah. like there? Well, first off, I, uh, to be totally transparent, I actually didn't spend, you know, days and days and days out with the police officers. I, I mean, I spent, I probably went out in six or seven of them at different times. The, it just so happened. I'm so lucky that very interesting things happened and not just very interesting things, but very interesting things that, that were, relevant to the community policing theme. So I, I really didn't have to do as much work as maybe it looks like. But I, I would say that the, um, the thing that impressed, me, that impressed me the most about going out with the officers was I went out with some young officers and I was really impressed with their maturity. And I, I would say some of these officers were like in their early to mid-20s. And 
you know, they understood, I mean, they had a very, they had a really close understanding of the people around them who they were dealing with. And in several, several of the cases, they were young Hispanic officers dealing with an Hispanic population. And uh, so, I, but I was just really impressed. I mean, one of the issues, this is actually over right by my house. I mean, I live a block from this, but there's Van Dome, which is a very popular nightclub on Hamilton Street. And when Van Dome lets out at 2 o'clock in the morning, there are a lot of young people on the street suddenly, and they've been drinking for a bunch of hours, and sometimes conflicts arise. And... Um, so the police and the Van Dome people do this. What it's almost like, it's this ballet of logistics, of a very in a very non-provocative way, moving people to their cars and moving them out, with without you know conflicts and stuff like this between between the people or between the police and the people. And uh, so one guy, uh, Eduardo Leonardo, who's a young guy on the midnight shift. Basically talked about, you know, he learned from older officers, he studied them, how they dealt with this, and, and he just felt like, oh, it's like, well, it is almost kind of like being a sociologist. I mean, you, you or a psychologist, a combination of both. Just dealing with people, understanding their frame of mind, understanding that a lot of people are inebriated, figuring out in a group of people who's the person you can appeal to, you know, who's not... Uh, riled up and uh, and dealing with it and he, and he also said in this neighborhood it's very hard to get a good job the last thing one of these young people needs is a police arrest record it's a moving moment it, when he says that to make it even yeah harder. it shows yeah. A, a real awareness and recognition yeah. of uh, yeah. the the challenges of being in a working class community of color and also of being in America and having a record. Um, it's, it's a, it's a great line to, yeah. to capture um, him saying, I do uh, one line that I was, I mean, I, I don't want to say less impressed, but what was very struck by was when you asked one of the Fairhaven beat cops, I forget his name, unfortunately, about what are some of the top issues that he faces that he sees in the neighborhood on a regular basis. And the first one he says is loitering. Um, and then he goes on to say burglary, prostitution, um, you know, fights, domestic violence, things that I think all of, you know, anyone would recognize as very serious problems in any community. But I, I was struck by loitering being the first one that came to mind. And I do think that that, that came up in a few interviews throughout the movie where police officers from... Uh, Lieutenant Zanelli on down spoke about the challenges of people, people hanging out, people hanging out on the street, uh, and whether or not someone is hanging out to do something illicit, like sell drugs, or is just there because they're on the street, or maybe they have nowhere else to go. Was that something that that you were thinking about over the course of the movie, like loitering and whether absolutely the criminalization absolutely. or the challenges presented yeah. by people just being on the street? Yes. Which is something that we should and, encourage and in a street in life. Our, right? In our in our town, we have a lot of homeless people, so that's another. I mean, that's kind of loiterers in another way. All right, so think about it from this point of view. You're a business along Grand Avenue in Fairhaven, and you have a bunch of people hanging out on your corner or right in front of your store. 
And some of them are drug dealers, and some of them are drug users. Some of them are homeless. Um, but you see them as a nuisance. And you call the police. And you ask the police, can, you do, can anything be done about this? Or you're down on um, Ferry Street, a couple blocks down. And that is a place where a lot of the sex workers are. It's a red light district. And you, and you're living there and you got the three kids and you say, why don't the police, what, you know, how can this be right outside my apartment? How is, why is this happening? You, and you, you call the police or maybe you don't call the police. You just throw your hands up. So this is one of the biggest dilemmas. So it may sound like, Oh, it's, you know, loitering. That's not a big problem for the people of a community. Loitering may be the biggest problem, or the dirt bikes. The dirt bikes may be the thing that irritates you most because your your kids play on Water Street or your kids play on Chapel Street, and they're relatively quiet, short streets. They could be, but every now and then, 50 dirt bikers come roaring down without any regard to anyone else. In fact, maybe they even... Go out of their way to intimidate people. So, on the one hand, the the neighbor calls the police. The police do not pursue dirt bikers. It's a policy because they, they, they crash into things and they hurt themselves or others. There is no solution to dirt biking. I mean, they, they do have some tactics. If they hear the dirt bikers are gassing up, they try to go and get them. Or if they're in a park, off their bikes. So, there's some tactics. So, I think these... They, these may sound like minor things, but from the from the quality of life point of view of the people in the neighborhood, you know, the people who pick up a phone and call the police, these are big things. So, I think it's, it gets to the dilemma. The goal the, of community policing to be a part of the community, to yeah. recognize quality of life concerns or crimes as uh, things that police officers should be engaged with. I mean, I think it gets back to what you said at the top of this part of the conversation that they have to function almost as sociologists. I mean, it's kind of uh, has has a long and troubled history in this country of police officers just taking the role of, I mean, not necessarily of their own volition, but of society requiring them to deal with uh, problems that arise from addiction and poverty and homelessness. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's... And, the rise of you know pre-arrest diversionary programs look to address that by yeah. uh, different, but it's it, it I think a fascinating conversation and debate at the center of this movie that you really get to see police officer and community member perspectives yeah. on yeah. Uh, these issues. How um, you've been? Well, first let me say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHH LP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm talking with Steve Ham, the director of Shift Change, a new documentary about community policing that's playing at the New Haven Documentary Film Festival. And the date that it is playing, fourth, the June fourth, six thirty p.m. Six thirty p.m. June fourth is a what day of the week? It's a Tuesday. It's a Tuesday, fifty three Wall Street, fifty three Wall Whitney Street, Humanity Whitney Humanity Center. Center. Um, I'm sure there will be a very big crowd, so get there early. And, and make I sure hope to, it to will. We, I've been doing all my social media. I saw you've you've been pounding the pavement yes, today, and the pavement the word as well. Out. Um, you uh, you've been writing about and thinking about police for a long time. You uh, you uh, were uh, you on on the cops beat for the New Haven Register in the 
80s. Do I have that right? Correct. Um, tell me about uh, your what what your I don't know your takeaways from being a cop beat reporter in the 80s were, and yeah. how your thoughts on community yeah. policing have changed uh, over the decades. Well, in the 80s, the police department was even whiter than it is now, and it was also much closer to the 60s when I when I believe policing took a very bad turn. But the, the things I dealt with as a police reporter in the mid-80s, the big things were crack. Crack came in because the cartel basically had this innovation. Instead of, you know, powdered cocaine was very expensive for, uh, it was for rich people, essentially. And they came up with this idea of, you know, coming up with a new version of crack that was cheap and going for, for poor people. And they brought that in, and that, and of course, there were all sorts of distribution lines and and boundaries and people, you know, organizations that were upset, and people were shooting the hell out of each other. So when I was a police reporter, there was just a lot of shootings, not as many murder, not as many killings, because I think at that time they were shooting each other very strategically, like in the knees or in the butt. To, to intimidate but not to kill. And that changed. But I want to backtrack. Look at the 1960s and look at what happened in the cities. You know, there was this white flight. Uh, there was terrible poverty in the cities. Manufacturing that was on a decline. Manufacturing had left the cities. And manufacturing had been the reason why lots of people, immigrants, and then people from the South or people from Puerto Rico. That's why they came to center cities. Suddenly manufacturing's gone. The jobs are gone. And, you know, that we had, well, you know, all the things that were happening in this, in the sixties and we had riots and the riots were, were met with a militaristic response and you know, literally the military came into cities and took over cities and when the military left, the police behaved like the military. They behaved like an occupying force. And they were, mo- in many cities, they were mostly white men. And maybe they were, you know, maybe also, I would say, there was a different frame of reference for a police officer in those days. Maybe people liked the excitement of, you know, being in an urban setting and cracking heads. I mean, literally, I think that was a motivation. Maybe I'm, re- you know... I know how how widespread it was. I don't know, but I'm sure it's was partly true. So, community policing comes in after that. So, in comparison to that, it's radically different. It's not like it went from old style, you know, beat cop twiddling his baton to community policing. It went through this intermediary phase, which was a nightmare, just a nightmare. So, it comes out of there. So I, I think, uh, you know, it's an interesting path to follow. Now, I think that's certainly yeah. the critique that yeah. Barbara Fair makes in the movie, yes, which yes. is that you, I think, very correctly identify the militarization of local police forces yeah. uh, post World War II. She says that that's still happening today, right? She says there's still too much investment in equipment and not in 
in people. And I mean, Pat Kane, I think, says, yeah, Pat says Kane something says someone. That. Maybe that's not Barbara. But, well, you look at the, you know, the yeah. armored vehicle they have, which I saw, I saw one moving through the streets. Actually, went into the federal FBI building. Who knows what that's about? But you know, you see things like that in the street, and it's and it's hey, it's military. It's a military vehicle. You see a SWAT team. You know, now of course, every now and then a SWAT team is needed. You know, so but I think you're. I think that the residue of that militarization remains. It's troublesome. It's hard to get rid of. I so mean, we have even, a lot even, of officers who are yeah. military veterans as well. I mean, that's well, a very big I mean, source. Of- I'm going to say something mm-hmm. radical here. Which is, I think police departments are very happy to hire military veterans, war veterans. I would say that might even be, I might even exclude war veterans. So what's a war veteran? A war veteran is a person who is very patriotic, who who volunteered to serve their country and to defend the United States. All beautiful things. Then they're trained to kill very efficiently, very effectively. They're given incredible weapons to do it with. They're put into situations where there are brown people around them they don't trust, who speak a different language, and who blow them up. Hmm. Uh, and then they get traumatized. Maybe they, maybe they, an IED goes off near their head. Uh, not the person you want coming into New Hallville. Yeah, and certainly I think that there is a, a, a loyalty that is encouraged within military cultures to, to ones who are on your side that, as we've seen, can be very toxic in police departments where once a, a bad actor does do something terrible, there is incredible reluctance to cross that blue line, as the saying goes, to, to speak out in opposition to it. Because of the the culture of camaraderie, and also, I mean, certainly now, I think that a lot of police. Chief Campbell even references this in his pretty amazing goodbye video that you include in this about how a lot of police feel like their backs are against the walls uh, right now. They really feel um, like they are being demonized by a culture kind of newly empowered through social media to document a lot more closely the actions of the police officers that serve them. And uh, that encourages closing of ranks. Yeah, yeah, there is a a defensiveness. Yeah, I mean, the combination of the body cams with just social media and everybody having a video camera on them has exposed to uh, police, uh, I think, mostly in a very positive way, you know, it's transparency of different kinds. And I think it's these things must be seen. You know, these horrible things that were being, being done to young black men, they were being do- done five years ago, too, you know, or six, or, you know, but it wasn't until, you know, whenever, starting with Trayvon Martin, that suddenly we saw it and we saw it again and again. And we saw it like sometimes twice in a week. And, and, and it became an issue of awareness that everyone in America became aware of. And I think, uh, so I think the police are uh, defensive, you know, I mean. And I, sh- and I think it's important to note that when we say, you know, we becoming aware of that, I think, you know, it's really yeah. white, white people, right, white, who, white who do not live in, yeah. yeah, in these neighborhoods and especially reporters who uh, did not go out of their way to cover these stories. All of a sudden the pressure is 
put on the media to pay more attention to, vi- you know, video evidence of um, police misconduct or polen- yeah. potential police misconduct. Um, why? Why did you? Uh, why did you want to make this movie in the first place? Well, I know, I know your your background reporting in this area. Um, you are obviously very involved in a lot of different community groups. And I mean, the downtown Worcester Square management team, so you're a regular at, but you know, you've really in your return to New Haven, you've really embedded yourself in uh, the kind of small D democratic ethos of the city. But what is it that drew you to community policing for the subject of this movie? Yeah. So... You know, I'm a freelance, I was a journalist, I've been a journalist for four, more than 40 years, uh, and I'm now a freelance journalist, and my, my freelance work is almost entirely writing about information technology and business, uh, medicine, and healthcare. But, so I do videos and documentaries of different lengths, and I they're all, almost all, focused on community building, and... Um, and I don't make any money from them. And the purpose is, the, the, the way I see community building is, if you show, if you, if you tell a story, and, it, and people see it, and perhaps it's they knew part of the story, but not all of the story, you, you spread awareness and understanding of each other, and also the filming, the showing, is an opportunity for people to have a discussion that also bridges between them and also possibly could lead to new ideas about how to do things better. In this case, policing better. So that's the purpose is to help foster a conversation. And that's why we have a panel after the show and Paul's going to be, uh, Paul Bass is going to be moderating the panel and the chief of police will be there, and Barbara Fair, community activist, Stacy Spell, uh, uh, a retired police officer who now leads a wonderful program on helping to steer, steer young men away from violence, you know? So, and then we're going to show we want, and I, I, I want to say this is very important, anybody who would like me to come to your neighborhood and to your community hall or whatever and show the film and have a group of people gather, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't even matter what size. I mean, the village, we showed it anywhere from six people to 300 people. And uh, sometimes six people can have, you know, if, if two people haven't met each other before and they come together and they get a great idea and they, go, they run with it, that could be powerful. So I'm not hung up on, you know, crowd size. So... We want to show it, and I, I do have, I mean, it's great if you have a projector on a venue and a, and a screen, but I do have a projector, and I have a screen. I have an eight-foot screen. I can take it anywhere. A one-man band. Yeah. What a wonderful effort. How, if people are interested, how do they get in touch with you? Is there a website or a Facebook page one can Well, go we to, do or? have a Facebook page for Shift Change, colon, mm-hmm. Community Policing in New Haven, or my email Steve Ham thirty one and Ham is H A M M at hotmail dot com. And maybe most pertinent for this show, uh, go to the screening on June fourth yes, and, and and uh, and listen to the panel, watch the movie, and and talk with Steve. And, t- and and hopefully the panel, you know, will have some. Qu- Paul will answer ask questions of the panelists, but then people, I hope people get up and say, "Let's do this. Why don't we mm-hmm. try this?" You know, because you know. It's easy to complain, and it's legitimate to complain, 
But I think in our city, concerning policing, it's time to go to the next step. And the next step is let's find solutions and let's everybody weigh in with creative ideas. Ready for me to put you on the spot? Yes. I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to try to uh, ask this question over 10 seconds to give you an impossible, um, an impossible feat of solving policing in New Haven. But the question is, is after, you know, spending these, these months making a movie about community policing, after all the people you spoke to, all the time spent thinking about it, what's an idea or two that you have for how the New Haven Police Department can better realize this ideal of more closely integrating police in the communities they serve, encouraging empathy between the two, um, and, uh, well, I won't have solved the fiscal crisis and <laughs> end all crime in there. Maybe that's a bit too much, but I don't know. What After all this you know, time thinking about it, any ideas that you have for how to fix this? Well, I think... Or better realize. I think recruiting is the most important thing, and I think the way you improve the recruiting and get more people from New Haven and people of color uh, and all kinds of, I mean, I think every kind of diversity we should have. Um, the way you do it is with deep outreach. And, you know, when you think about the police, you know, in, in New Hallville and Dixwell and the hills, some, some parts of the hill, you know, the poli- young people don't look at the police often and say, ah, I, that's what I want to be. Because I think there's probably a, a feeling of, oh, they're, they're dangerous to me. Or they're not liked. They're not trusted. So I think there need to be really innovative programs that go at reaching children at a young age. It's not starting with recruiting, but starting with let's understand each other. One of my favorite moments in the movie and most ins- inspiring moments is involves Officer Richard Benson, uh, who works out at a boxing gym uh, in New Hall. I believe it's, is it the elephant in the room boxing gym that no, he's at? No, or is it the one in the hill? Fairhaven. It's, oh, it's in boxing Fairhaven. and faith. Ah, got it. Boxing and faith. Yeah. Um, I love the way that he is a part of that athletic community, completely independent of his job as a police officer. And yet the teens and people in their young twenties who also work out there recognize him as a, uh, as a, a role model, as someone they can talk to about boxing, but also about everything else going on in their lives, and who have very serious and life-changing conversations with him about what kind of life they want to lead. I feel like that is a kind of miraculous moment of a police officer through his being in the neighborhood when he's not on the clock. Yeah which is a, diff- a difficult thing to ask of anyone who has a job to spend yeah. time not on their job. You know, but it's real, it's real community building in a way that I love the, the basketball games that police officers show up to, but I still do um, something doesn't quite feel right when I see officers wearing, uh, you know, a lot of like protective gear and, no, they and were wearing, armor. The, at, they were wearing bulletproof at, vests, yeah, which, I, which they, have to, they actually have to wear. Uh, and I mean, one of the reasons they're wearing that, I mean, they're required to wear it. Yeah. And they were there partly at that basketball, uh, tournament to show the flag and to reach out in various ways, but they were also there to 
prevent a shootout. Right. I mean, it, right. was, it was a distinct possibility that people could have pulled guns and started firing at each other. So those officers had to be prepared for that as well. Let me go back to Benson. So Benson started uh, boxing at the local gym in Fairhaven because he was a beat cop in Fairhaven. Uh, but then he's moved on. But he still, he still works out there, and he still boxes there. So I was working on Chaz's movie, Single Dads, and I'm over in Fairhaven Heights interviewing a dad and his son. And I talk to the son. I say, and the son's a boxer. So I said, oh, where do you box? He, oh, he boxes there. And, and I said, well, you know, what? do you have any encounters with cops? Oh, Officer Benson. Uh, he told he had intervened in his life and made a difference. And he's in the movie, and this he's young the, man. He's, he's in the, the movie yeah. as well. So it was just a miracle that the two movies kind of overlapped right there and, and that he had a nice thing to say. Now, he also said some things, you know, he'd had bad encounters with cops as well. And uh, so it's not like he has this, you know, glassy, uh, you know, um, totally optimistic Pollyanna-ish view of, right. of the police. He has a, he's very distrustful in many ways. But it sounds like what encouraged the positive associations he has with the police comes through exactly that relationship built yeah. outside of the context of being stopped. Yeah, <laughs> for, and I think you know? this young man, I, I, I understand that he went back to the gym, he's been mm. training, and I, somebody told me he's been, in, he's been in some amateur fights, he's doing very well. So it's, it's kind of a story. happy story, yeah. you know? Um, well, there, there are many, many stories like that, many stories to uh, uh, provoke a lot of great thinking and conversations about how we want our community to be policed and how we want to relate to our police officers in, in shift change. And I can't recommend strongly enough to check it out June 4th at the Whitney Humanities Center. Go to nhdocs.com and check out the movie's Facebook page to learn more about it. Before I let you go, Steve, I do want to ask... About what's next? I know we spoke. What's next? We spoke briefly uh, uh, outside of uh, City Hall the other day about some things you've been bouncing. Is anything that you would care to share yeah. now about? I don't know oh, what I, general no. ideas you're oh, interested in reporting. Absolutely. Um, so, um, I thought about. I, I, you know, there's so many. I focus on problems with the idea that maybe with more knowledge and conversation we can come up with good, better solutions. So there, there's no end of possible topics in our wonderful city. Uh, but I'm what I'm I've really focused in on for now, and I've embarked on is uh, something I call fentanyl families, and fentanyl is synthetic heroin, and it's a very dangerous thing in our society because it's fifty to one hundred times as powerful as heroin, and if it's either if it's if it's bought at someone thinks it's heroin, they might, the chances of them overdosing are extremely, you know, are, are, are increased. If it's late, it sometimes it's laced into cocaine, other things, sometimes it's, it's put into marijuana, like a, if somebody sells a marijuana cigarette, they might get sprinkled in there. So it's, it's this incredibly dangerous thing. And in 2017, I think, uh, 1,017 people died of overdoses in the state, and almost 800 were from fentanyl. Wow. So it's this terrible, terrible thing. It's a monster. It's really a monster. It's a cruel monster. And so I'm doing a thing where I'm trying to pick two families who have lost a loved one or who had some very traumatic experience as a result of fentanyl to show 
this is what this is what fentanyl do, is mm-hmm. doing to our society with the idea of action. You know, because there's a lot of action on opioids in general, and I think some of it's pretty good, and there's been some progress made. But fentanyl in particular, it really requires some extra thinking and some, you know, thinking a little further about it specifically. And I think that probably hasn't happened yet, So even with the laws. like, So I found one family, hmm. which is a, a white, upper-class suburban family in Madison who lost a son last December from an overdose. And But clearly, I mean, that's one point of view. That's one experience. But the last thing I would want to do is present something that people would look at and say, oh, now that white people are dying, you care about heroin, you care about opioids, which I think is something that's a legitimate critique about, about the, the media in general and the, and the government in general about opioids. So I'm trying to find a family of color, like urban family of color to be. So you can see the contrast in the experience, but you can also see the commonality. Hmm. Which I think there's going to be a lot. That sounds like a, a fascinating and very important uh, subject for. If, if anybody knows yeah. of such a family that might be willing to cooperate with me, please reach out to me. Yeah, please do. I mean, I, I think that uh, these documentaries really have a capacity to bring communities together to brainstorm how to solve these seemingly intractable social problems. So, um, yeah. If anyone knows someone who who may be interested in, in working with Steve on this, please do check out uh, the different uh, shift change sites we mentioned or show up to the June 4th screening and seek them out. Um, yeah. Steve, it's been such a pleasure as always to have you on the show and talking about this movie. Congrats again on making a really fascinating, provoke, uh, thought, thought-provoking movie. And I can't wait to see how it plays out over the coming weeks and months. Good. Thank you for having me. So June 4th, Winnie Humanity Center. Go to nhstocks.com, 6.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. All right, Steve, we'll talk to you soon.